Welcome to the Frankly Who Cares podcast. It's the Frankly Who Cares podcast, the podcast that takes endless joy from crushing the Australians. On today's pod, we catch up with the latest goings on in sport. We talk baseball and we run through our top individual sporting rivalries. Hello, I'm Alex, joined as always by Tom. How are you doing, Tom? Very well, thank you. Yeah, how, how are things with you? Not bad, yeah. It's good. It's been a, a, a good couple of weeks um, since we last met. Uh, obviously, restrictions have been eased, or uh, from tomorrow we can go to the pub again. Yeah, I mean, that. I think we've touched on that. That is the most crucial part of sport for us, isn't it, really? Watching or, or playing is usually revolved around the pub in some way, so uh, mm. quite a key bit. I mean, I since we've last recorded, I've played golf twice, and later on I have cricket practice outside, which seems wow. far too early in the year, but we're not allowed <laughs> to practice inside still, so... Yeah, there's a lot of people standing with, you know, working out where they've kept their hand warmers for the winter. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's all, all going in the right right direction. And, yeah, mm. my my diary for the week, I don't know if yours is this, it's like every evening it's like curry, pub, haircut, pub. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, maybe minus the haircut on my side, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but very much likewise. Well, I'm slightly worried about... Um, us meeting up and going to the pub, I have to admit. Well, so we've like, used up all do? our material. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Might just have to talk about things other than sport. Have we ever done that? Okay. This is where we find out the true depth of our friendship. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm worried about. <laughs> <Here> we <are. laughs> well, there, there's been some, some good things I've sort of picked up on uh, last since last time so we, we did talk about the women's six nations mm. and how it reeks of afterthought uh, in organization so uh, we spend a lot of time retracting things we've said in earlier pods but I'm going to go the other way and, and gloat about how something we said has turned out to be massively true okay so last weekend the women's six nations so arguably the biggest game England Scotland now I say that because it's not the same format as the men's Six Nations. They're in three, two groups of three. So England are actually playing Wales and Ireland in the, the first bit. But they are playing Scotland. Um, BBC have got the coverage. Uh, and so they put it on iPlayer. Uh, right, okay. Well, they must have been showing something really important on BBC One then, or BBC Two, because, you know, to displace that. And this is before, this is when all the Royals were still alive as well. So. Right. Um, flog it wow the constantly repeated game show is it a game show it's about antiques uh, but I anyway of... come on flog it took priority over that yeah and I think okay. on BBC 2 there were some films something a classic kind of Easter family film like Romancing the Stone or something like that you know that Jewel on the mm. Nile Agatha you know Nothing like they've paid big money for a new film first time on Terrestrial or anything, no. So, yeah, obviously. That's very poor. That is, it's not, not brilliant. Um, the, so England, Scotland is not as well contested as the men's game at the moment because the resources are quite inequitable. So uh, 
the Scotland team aren't fully professional, so unsurprisingly it was a fairly comfortable England win, but I I can't see that that was the reasoning involved. Mm. Uh, and I think they are looking to show, because it's two groups of three, there's a final, so I think the final is going to be on mainstream TV, but right. I wouldn't be surprised if it's not either. No, very poor. Um, so, yeah, the uh, so I've been spending a lot of time on the Masters this weekend. Um, so have I, actually. Mm. And kind of a lot of commentary on between friends tends to be on what people are wearing because um, it's been mm-hmm. some quite interesting efforts on the golf course. Uh, what what has caught your eye in particular? So Brooks Koepka had sort of a black and grey outfit on with a hot pink mm-hmm. cap. Did you see that one? I missed that, thankfully. Yeah, I mean, that was bold. Um, <laughs> there's always a couple of people who... I don't know if they've, they've maybe lost a bit of weight and so they've tried to get clothes that are really tight so they look really good and they've just gone a little bit too far and they look awful. Um, mm. So, uh, or it's maybe it's a, it's a bit warmer in Georgia so they've been like in the gym in Europe all winter and they go over there and it's all hanging a little bit looser. <laughs> so, um, but there's not any complete shockers. Um but yeah, it's been it's shaping up to be quite a good Masters. Though. There's some big names who missed the cut. It was until quite late last night it was looking pretty open. But it does Matsuyama's as as we record with three rounds in and Matsuyama's four shots clear. Um, yeah, so I was watching that yesterday. Route, so. Yeah, and he his his uh, his back nine yesterday was was incredible, like yeah. flawless. I know. Wherever he left the ball, he just he, he managed to get a par or a, or a birdie or even an eagle. It was it was yeah quite quite something. But I thought Justin Rose, who really massively struggled, did unbelievably well to get out of it. In you know still in that final pair. Yeah, he he still. It's it's a big ask four shots back, but mm. what what makes me think if there were loads of people between him and the leader I think it would be quite difficult but he's in the pack um, and the leader's four shots clear of everyone so I think you know Justin's only got to beat that one you know only got to recover shots on that one guy and Augusta is far more likely to trip you up on you know explosions on holes we've seen McElroy and Spieth yeah yeah so um, but, but yeah it's been it's been good the sky mm. coverage again it's one of those things that I was annoyed initially it's not on the BBC anymore and then you see Sky do it and it's like, oh yeah, it's really good. It and is I, really good. I didn't even realise it was so hilly until they do all those like 3D kind of... Yeah. So it's flat and, you know, undulating, but bloody hell. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's all been... That's all, all that has been good. Fun. Just on the, uh, on, the, on the fashion front, I have... I finally have found a way to get Cassie interested which is the fashion like she was she was doing a running commentary about trousers in particular you know anyone wearing baggy trousers basically should be kicked out of the the, of the yeah yeah Uh, there's no excuse for that apparently really is um yeah and um yeah i think she's making a pitch to to come on as a guest on this podcast to talk about fashion and footballers hairstyles which she, (laughs) she seems to think she can fix so um yeah, she's going to have to pay for the professional version of Zoom for us to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we haven't got yeah. guests. <laughs> Very true. Uh, yeah, that has been great. Um, one thing I've mentioned about pre-season. So pre-season training is always pretty grim if you play a 
play sport and I think I've seen a lot of good pictures on the county championship cricket of like players in beanies doing fielding practice and have you seen the picture yesterday from Headingley so they were uh, snowed off and it was completely it looks like Christmas you know it's completely really yeah so and I mean what was it the 11th of April so yeah that is quite unusually late but still um, yeah I mean the first pre-season games of cricket are always utterly grim it's like Mm. you've got a jumper which only gets one or two outings a whole year but is it worth having three of them for that first pre-season friendly it's just (laughs) so grim and you know the first thing that happens is the ball comes to you just dips in front of you on the half volley and you're just like oh F this (laughs) get me to July as soon as possible please so um so yeah, I think um, another thing that's happened in restrictions is is uh, we've been able to see uh, families in their gardens, uh, which mm. is good. Um, but it also has given me a whole new access of people to ask who the most famous sports person in the world is. Um, ah, we return to this. I mean, it's just not Serena Williams. It just isn't. So Lewis Hamilton has come forward a lot more. I mean, there's no way he's more famous than Serena Williams. Well, not a chance on earth. Well, I think we're going to just have to agree to disagree there. Um, no I mean, the thing is, we uh, one of the things I thought might have skewed it is that because we did a feature on F1 last time, so mm. our listeners should probably have skewed it towards Lewis Hamilton. So we, we, we need to yeah, do maybe. one in tennis just to make sure it's... it's okay, noted. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think between... We do seem to have settled on a sort of short list of Lewis Hamilton, Tiger Woods... And Serena Williams, yeah, but mm. um, I I struggle to think that there's anyone getting into that conversation. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Me. And and it just it does show that at the moment there isn't really there there have been times over the past. In fact, there's a few people going to be coming up uh, later um, in this podcast who undisputedly were the most famous sports person in the world and one of them the most famous person in the world at one point um which you just don't quite have that at the moment there's no one who really transcends i mean tiger woods obviously is still around but as we said he's not quite as relevant to everybody at the moment um exactly so um yeah be interesting to talk about some of the others later but yeah i agree that that doesn't sound like a bad shortlist i mean i I don't know if you've seen the trailer for space jam 2 yet so I, this is the first time i'm even hearing about that well yeah. <laughs> get yourself on youtube straight away okay after today after, the, after this after yeah. this <laughs> uh i mean it looks pretty dreadful but you know oh, good. it could tell so. lebron james to whole new levels of of stardom <laughs> so uh okay yeah, I'll watch that, and we can reflect on that next time. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> the chances of him jumping into the conversation. I mean, I think I always think the thing about sports films, and I think this will come up a bit in baseball because there's quite a lot of films about baseball, is that how much you enjoy films about sport doesn't really link to how good they are. I think true. Like, yeah. Escape to Victory. I'm not saying it's a good film, but it's an entertaining couple of hours, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, so you know I, I just think there's a whole kind of different way of marking sports films I would agree with that yeah and if you want uh, something that's well done about sport I'll watch a documentary yeah 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 don't go to the movies absolutely no. not 
Mm. So, and I mean, that's definitely a gold, silver, bronze, Dean Macy of the future, isn't it? Fort sports film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm doing it to the list as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, baseball. Hmm. So, we... Um, so, the, the Major League Baseball season uh, started uh, last week, so the 1st of April. Um, and I've got into baseball a lot more in the last three or four years. I always kind of had a bit of a spell at university where I, I got into it and tried to understand a little bit about it. But it's probably, it's certainly less popular here than basketball and NFL. Yeah. Um, but it is the only summer sport in America, really. Uh, I think MLS runs at the same time, but it's... so. It's absolutely enormous in terms of quantity, and I think everyone plays baseball to some degree in America, you know. Um, and there's a lot of countries as well that that, that uh, sort of in and around the Caribbean who focus on baseball, play an awful lot of baseball. Uh, so I wanted to look at it as a bit of a um, to discuss some of the interesting kind of foibles of the sport. Uh, okay. So the way I've done this is. Uh, we always talk about four being the magic number gold, silver, bronze, team. Mm. so I'm going to use four of the greatest words known in the sport to tell you how I'm going to do this oh, I've yeah. prepared a quiz <laughs> excellent right, so I'm going to pose you some questions about MLB uh, Major League Baseball and mm-hmm. uh, I want you to give me an answer and talk through why you think that's the answer and we'll, we'll have a okay. chat about it Right. Okay. Uh, so there's 30 teams in the league. In a right. regular season, how many games does each team play? Just the regular season. Okay. I'll show my working from the start here. I know it's a ridiculous amount because I think they sort of go on, like they go away and they'll play like about six or seven games in just in, like the space of a few days, something like that anyway. Um and they, and they play for months and months and months. So it, it ends in like November or something ridiculous like that, October, November. So, right, let me do some maths here. So team, do they have to play all, all the other teams? You know, not necessarily in American sport because you could have different conferences like in NFL, but that's irrelevant anyway because uh, they just play tons of games. Right, let's say it's six games. Ah, but then they don't play dead rubbers, I don't think. Hmm, or do they? So that's regular season I'm talking about. Mm, regular season. Yeah. Right. So, ah, right. Okay. So I think. I'm going to go 80. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, good good working. A lot of logic mm. in there, which I'm not sure trans- transferred into the numbers in the end. But um, <laughs> mm. So the total number of games played by each team in a regular season is 162. Which wow. roughly equates to a game every day, six days a week for six months. <laughs> okay. Uh, the playoffs, which can then total another 20 games on top. Right. So that includes... Uh, and if you rained off, pretty much, unless if, if unless they've started and got quite a long way through the game and like the, the result's basically done, if you rained off, you have to play the game anyway. So they do sometimes two games in a day. <laughs> 
<laughs> so what? if you think of the number of matches there are, it's basically, you know, there's between 10 and 15 matches a day every single day for the summer. Uh, and they have a sort of an all-star break halfway through the season, which lasts for about three or four days, you know, around the get that game. So, so it's absolutely mental. So That's as a insane. as a British sports fan, I I find it hard to understand the jeopardy of losing because just like the best team in the league will lose sixty-five games. <laughs> what well, is that? But there's also, is there a demand for that? Are they that insatiable in their demand for baseball that people go and watch? enough games to make that viable well if you're a season ticket holder you're getting value aren't you well that's true yeah so, yeah uh, you absolutely I mean, are you just go whenever you want whenever you want there's going to be a game on pretty and much. what what you'll notice so it's hard at the moment because because of covid they haven't got many people in um but they they you know if they play a wednesday afternoon game early in the season there's hardly anyone there whereas mm. friday night Saturday games are, are pretty well attended but it just it is an absolutely bonkers thing so it is quite so when you talk about and I'll move on to this some of the unusual things that happen it is really unusual because there's literally thousands upon thousands of games yeah um so so yeah I think whilst I'm not expecting you to get exact answers I don't think I can give you a even a, a sort of sympathy point on that one. no that's fair. So, uh, so I'll go on to question two. There's not many questions, listeners. You'll be pleased okay. to know because it took you about five minutes to answer that one. Um, <laughs> uh, so Mike Trout is considered currently, give or take, the best player in baseball. Uh, and he, a couple of years ago, March 19, he signed a new contract with the Los Angeles Angels. He was 27 when he signed his contract. How long was his contract? Okay, the fact that you're asking me this question and you've told me his age and 27 is pretty much in many sports the peak. Um, I'm thinking it's a really ridiculously long contract. Um, so what's the question? How how many years? How many years? Yeah, I've given you this. 15 years. 15. That's it's incorrect, but I'll give you a point because it's, it's, it's in the right ballpark. Um, basically, okay. uh, the... It was twelve years, so uh, and it surpassed the most valuable contract ever, um, in which had been signed the previous year, where Bryce Harper had signed one for thirteen years. Um, do you want to have a stab at the total value of his twelve-year contract? This isn't a this isn't marked. This question. Okay, this is just for fun, right? Okay, so. Um... <laughs> Right, so each yeah, twenty. I'm gonna go four hundred and fifty million dollars. See, that seems like an absolutely bonkers amount, but that is four hundred and thirty million. Wow! So you're starting to get probably a feel for how many games there are and the sort of money that is in this sport, right? That's incredible. So, uh, and this is a final sub-question on this question. Uh, mm. That was the most the most valuable contract in terms of pound notes, i.e. the uh, absolute amount, until it was surpassed this year by someone else. Do you know who that was? A different sport? No. Oh, uh, Patrick Mahomes? Patrick Mahomes, very good. It doesn't count that one. But, um, yeah. So this is one of the things I think is really interesting about uh, American sport as a whole, 
this is quite sad if you don't think it's interesting but so um is that your contract exists whoever you play for so um so i was listening to like the harry kane kind of debate at the moment which is he's not getting uh the level of winning and com- competing in tournaments that his uh, ability arguably deserves so he can go off and sign a mega contract with real madrid and they can offer him mega money but america you can't do that you've got to pay them the contract they've signed with someone else mm. this contract Mike Trout contract he could suddenly get rubbish when he's about 33 and then they are lumbered with this absolute dog of a contract that's costing them what 40 million a year something like that mm. so it is it's really interesting and, and what that means is the dynamic of trading is quite interesting because um, a very few teams make it through to the playoffs I think it's 10 out of 30 so you know sometimes with like 40 or 50 matches left that you're not getting through and you can have someone who's costing you quite a lot for this year and maybe next year and you might think well actually my team's going to be pretty crap next year as well and they'll trade away this absolute gun for loads of kids and they seem to be really willing to kind of bet on youngsters who might be amazing. But none mm-hmm. of them ever seem to be amazing. This is what I don't really get. And some of the trades are just like, oh yeah, they traded away the best player in baseball and got three guys who never ever played for them. And it's just like, but, the dynamics are just so strange. So that does seem weird. Is there a similar thing with than there is in American football where there's a salary cap? So you've got a certain amount of budget that you can use to pay all your players effectively. So if someone's got on a ridiculously high contract, that limits the amount you can pay others. That's the case in American uh, football. I, I don't think it's the same cap, but they have different mm. budgets. So right. like the Yankees pay more than anyone else. So they might mm. buy out. So, so they might decide in a few years that they're not winning and they fancy taking Mike. Mm. They might be the only guys yeah. who to take his contract. Um, mm. Whereas in football, uh, uh, soccer, you'd mm. negotiate it down, wouldn't you? You'd say, oh, come on, I'm not paying you that. And, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's more like you sort of Alexis Sanchez situation where, man, you were paying him so much, he basically became unmovable. And you do tend to get that um, with sort of mm. players in their late 30s, even 40s, who have agreed deals of eight, nine, ten years plus. And they're it's just bizarre. An absolute. I mean, I can only assume that you would give someone a twelve-year contract if that person is holding all the cards. So that person's thinking, "I know if I leave you, someone else is going to give me that contract." Yeah. So quite happy to leave. That's the only reason why a club would would want to, you know, commit to such a ridiculous gamble. And there's a it's a strange kind of curve of of, of the way it works. So um, so I think. Trout's been surpassed by a pitcher in the last year called Garrett Cole. And he was free market. So he could get anything. But you have to qualify to be completely free market. So you have to have done mm. a like, certain period of So what you find is like there's some amazing some of the amazing most amazing players in the league who are like twenty two, because they haven't qualified for this yet. They only get paid sort of half a million dollars a year. Which sounds, you know, sort of if you can get it, but compared to these guys who are turning out the same numbers who don't who are getting 30 million a year down the road and it suddenly jumps up right and mm. but it does mean 
when you get to sort of transfer deadline, which is a sort of, I think that's kind of where the Sky Sports football thing has come from because it's a really big mm. deal in America. Because you might be on the cusp of the playoffs and say, right, well, let's trade for this rubbish team's best player. But we know he's only got a year left. So do we trade some of our brightest prospects who will be with us for 10, you know, five or 10 years until they get to their qualification? Or do we put the farm on, you know, this guy bringing us the goods Mm. in the next 18 months before which he's either going to leave or we're going to have to pay him an absolute fortune. Um, Yeah. And this happened in basketball a few years ago. Um, So do you you follow basketball sort of? No. no, So Toronto Raptors are the only Canadian team in in the NBA and they won. Um, And they bet the farm on winning this particular year. And they pulled in a player from another team, knowing he was a free agent at the end of the season. And I think they thought, well, if we win it, he'll definitely stay. And we'll just sign a new contract. And they won it, so it worked. But he didn't sign a new contract. He went somewhere else. So everything they oh. traded for him was gone. Plus, he's gone. So it's like a risky, risky strategy. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's interesting. In, in NFL, it's slightly different. You mentioned about trading young players for... Um, yeah, for... for established people um whereas it's it's draft picks in the nfl which in that period now where they've just had the free agency period where people on rookie contracts or short-term contracts can um uh, negotiate new deals with that club or elsewhere um and we're coming up to the draft uh, as in the rookie draft at the end of this month um one of the big moves, probably the biggest move that 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 happened that's happened recently is Jared Goff, who was the LA Rams quarterback, who went to the Super Bowl with them um, right. a few years ago, has just gone off a cliff in terms of just being really bad. And I've read Sean about McVay, this, yeah. yeah, Sean McVay, the coach, who's one of these young dynamic coaches, um, just had enough. So they traded for someone quite a few years older, Matt Stafford from Detroit, who had been there for years. They're such a rubbish team. He never really achieved anything with them as a club, but individually really good. So they traded um, multiple future draft picks for the next few years. So a first rounder, a couple of second round picks, and then like a third round pick. So they, it's the promise of them being able to pick, you know, players who they don't know who they're going to be yet, um, uh, that they give basically to Detroit. Uh, so they gave their quarterback, who's on a massive contract, to Detroit. They take on the contract, but then they get what they consider to be a better quarterback, but they lose lots of draft picks. It's really, really interesting. And a lot of it's just a gamble. Yeah. That, so the, it's a similar arrangement, I think, across most American sports, but the, the thing in the NFL is is the draft picks are ready. Like, um, So there was... I remember there was a game, this was probably 10 mm. years ago now, maybe 15, called the Reggie Bush Bowl. Mm. So Reggie Bush was the best, like the best college prospect for forever. And he was going to be the number one draft pick. And it was something like the last game of the season was between the two worst teams. <laughs> so whoever lost was going to get, probably get Reggie Bush. And, um, and he was going to clearly come straight in as a starter and be a, an absolute. Mm. So in baseball, the problem is 
they often spend three or four years in the minor leagues building up to it and you just don't know how they're going to go through that like they could get a yip yeah. they get injured they can get so they do trade for for things like but it's often it tends to be more prospects who are already drafted right. rather like, uh, than oven ready than draft players picks, yeah. But it is, mm. yeah yeah exactly um so yeah it, it's the the change in the dynamic is quite quite interesting for that but um We'll move on from the inner workings of sports contracts because that might be a bit dry <laughs> for some. Um, but, okay, uh, this is going to... This could go off on all sorts of tangents, this question. So question three. Right. How hard is batting? So, by which I mean, what proportion of at-bats... So at is, like, if you assume I'm the batsman, I walk up to the plate and you get strikes and balls and things, so... But that all counts as an at-bat. Right. So my personal duel with a pitcher, right? So that's one at-bat. Even if I'm out, if I hit it in the air, I'm out first ball, or or I battle with him for ages and I'm out mm. at the end. That's one at-bat. So what proportion of at-bats results end in home runs? I.e. hits out of the park and you trot round. So you're saying what percentage? What percentage okay. of at-bats end in home runs? The way you've set that up makes me feel like it's really low um how low so home runs okay home runs is like yeah that's the the main thing you're aiming for but when you do that it's special i'm it's gonna be less than one percent i think 0.25 percent that is extremely low (laughs) (laughs) uh so um so it's around four percent okay but what 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 that means in real numbers is is uh it's nine innings and you get three outs in each innings so at the minimum you get 27 bats in innings in a game and it's going to be one the, the average is just over one home run per team per game oh right okay so uh, it, it, it's four percent um, but your answer has basically ruined <laughs> that's it the, the short answer is it's really really hard and hitting a fastball in baseball is apparently one of the hardest things to do in sport. Okay. So, what other things are really difficult to do in sport? And, and I'm hold that thought because I've got a couple of stats. Okay. Stat. So the best batsman in baseball, bat- batters, they don't call them batsmen, so I always get it wrong, uh, reach first base with a hit around about 30% of the time. So okay. even the best players in the sport get out more than two thirds of the time that they try right uh, Mike Trout the aforementioned multi-millionaire his career batting average is 30% to get on base mm. so it's it's really really hard uh, and the best active player has got an average of 31% and like the best ever is like 33 so what's good about baseball if you're that way inclined which I clearly am is there's so many stats that you can just go down an absolute wormhole, and um, and because they have so many games and so like it's all pretty you know really reliable stuff. Um, so my final question is um, on Friday. This is the hardest one by miles. Uh, okay. And yeah, I, yeah, you've done quite well so far. On Friday, so two days ago. Joe Musgrave achieved 
what feet in a baseball game, Major League Baseball game. You can have a go, or do you want a clue? I'll, I'll have a clue, yeah. Uh, he's a pitcher. So he oh, okay. Pitches. Did, hmm, did, is it something around getting loads of people out in a row or something? Um, yeah, you're know. on the right lines. Like, I don't know. Like, what do you call it? Strikeout or something like yeah, that? Yeah, striking out. So about six of those in a six in a innings or something like that. So it's good effort. So um, hmm. he through the whole game. So uh, that's tends to be about 100, 110 pitches where you're throwing hmm. a minimum of eighty-five miles an hour. He went through the whole game. He didn't let a single batter reach base with a hit. So he's faced twenty, a minimum of twenty-seven, without reaching a hit. So um, now, bear in mind we talk about the number of games that are played. This has happened uh, three hundred and six times, ever. But mm. the perfect game is where no batter reaches first base under any circumstances. Okay. So the difference between that is that you can have errors where the guy, like, mm. they, they hit to a fielder and he would have got him out, but he throws it into the crowd or something. Or mm. you can get, you can, if it's four balls, you walk to first. So that, that's quite, that's not called a hit, that's something else. Um, the perfect game where no one has reached base at all has been achieved 23 times in Major League history, which is 145 years of which we've already discussed there are 162 times 15 whatever that is many games yeah. wow. now whilst this wasn't a perfect game it was one mistake away from being a perfect game he hit one batter with a pitch which is an automatic walk to first right so wow. he was that close to doing something that's only been done 23 times so this is never been done so it hasn't been done a perfect game since 2012 and bizarrely there were three in 2012 i don't know what's going on there but. Mm. so i feel this is very very baseball heavy um what other things in sport are that level of strange bizarre what have you never seen because so i i've got a couple that i immediately thought of go on uh, so an albatross in golf mm -hmm. I can only remember seeing one even watching which was in the Masters a few years ago East Hazen hit one on the last day mm. but I don't remember seeing many watching watching sport on TV and then the other one was a tenfer so ten a bowler taking ten yeah so I've played I must have played close to 300 games of of league cricket, maybe more actually, and I've the most I've seen is nine, and even then mm. I think the first wicket was the other guy. <laughs> so, and it's for me it's like a combination of you could be the best bowler out there, and you won't get close to taking ten. Yeah, yeah, because so many factors outside your control, and that's the thing with a perfect game in baseball. It's like if a fielder makes an error, it's not a perfect game. 
if you hit mm. the batter it's not a perfect game there's loads of things outside your control um, and it's it is really difficult because then I thought about one four seven break holes in one but they seem to be yeah too they happen yeah one four seven breaks do happen a reasonable amount holes in one I've seen a couple over this weekend already yeah. in like the Masters the, the um, strange things about holes in one is that they are they are undoubtedly a little bit of luck because there'll be some unbelievable golfers out there like who haven't got holes in one there'll be pros who have never had a hole in one hmm. but there'll be absolute duffers who have got like two or three <laughs> so so you're a golfer i remember soccer am used to ask this question <laughs> yeah, back yeah, in yeah. The day. is it luck or skill <laughs> is it fluke is it flukiness or is it skill I, I when you hold an approach shot view. you mean yeah 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 what what do you what's your thoughts um it is it is luck but there's um there's an element of luck but you're obviously far more it's um what's that the phrase the the more you train the luckier you get so if you're mm -hmm. smashing loads of shots towards the pin you're gonna be more likely to get one yeah um so i've never got a hole in one but i'm not very good um and i've i've been quite close once um well, I remember thinking in the air, this is it, retirement time. Um, <laughs> but I've also never seen one. And I've played mm. with, like, scratch golfers and low mm -hmm. single figures. And I think yeah. the closest I've ever seen was one of my mates just topped a tee shot and it just rolled and rolled and rolled and nearly went in. <laughs> um, yeah. And so... But I... I've also I've only holed an approach shot once and it was miles wide and it hit a bank and then kicked onto the green and it went in half. <laughs> so that was obviously They all count. Lucky. They all count. But I I, yeah, I don't know. I just think you are aiming you're aiming so but yeah, it's is, what you're trying to do, so it's not it's completely what lucky. Exactly. Yeah. Um but yeah, obviously there's a bit of fortune if it bounces off like yeah, some something else that goes in. But yeah, I mean of course it's the skill is putting yourself in a position where it can happen yeah, because yeah. you're getting that close. So it's and there's there's also shades of grey on there because if you like if you hit a shot in and it lands exactly where you were intending it to and it rolls up to the pin and it just about reaches and drops in, you're like, wow, that mm. is like the perfect shot. Mm. Whereas some like smack into the pin halfway up and drop in the <laughs> hole and you're like, oh, that's a bit spawny. There's been a couple yeah, of days yeah. this weekend where you're like, uh, yeah, was it speed? I think he. He hit a chip too hard, and they were like, "That's going in the water over the other side of the green." And it hit the pin and dropped in. And you're like, "Well, that's a full <laughs> yeah. swing." So, <laughs> things like a one four seven, because we had a conversation on my friendship group about whether a one four seven is harder than a hole in one, or, or you know, it was some some snooker golf comparison. And like one four seven, again, it, you need the setting to be right, hmm. but. It seems to me now that all professionals of a certain level would have at least done one in practice. They'll have definitely. Yes. Um, whereas I think you could go your whole career and you could be a really successful golfer without hitting a hole in one. It's not. Yeah. It's not needed. Um, I also think um, sports where there are no other elements um, getting in your way. So snooker tables completely flat. Yeah. It is. Um, there isn't like wind or anything like that yeah, to contend yeah. with. You haven't got an opponent trying to stop you from doing a, a, a thing. It's just you, and and con controlled conditions. I, I guess you could call it. 
So yeah, I don't I don't think it it's more difficult. Yeah, but there's when I went down the I was sat watching the Masters last night, looking up stuff on baseball and like the rabbit. So there's like so many websites just about baseball stats, and there were things that have only happened a certain number of times. So there's things like uh, one fielder gets out all three batsmen and retires the side has only happened like so unassisted so they just do everything they do on their own and it basically it needs the perfect combination of well there's no one out already because otherwise the innings would end when two or one or two people are yeah but and you need the three people on in the right locations at the right time and and there's things like that which are just really rare and the 10 foot in cricket is it's one of those where you kind of you need the conditions to be in favour for the bowler, so he's virtually unplayable, but not to be so hope, helpful for bowlers that the other guys aren't getting later wickets as well. Mm. Um, and the I've seen a nine where uh, so it was the the team I play for in Southwest London. We prepared a used wicket. And it just looked like this wicket had just been dropped in from the subcontinent, and their overseas player was an Indian spinner, and we were like, Christ! <laughs> and then yeah, he took like, and he was just turning it. Well, I went forward, played a defensive shot, hit me in the armpit. It's just <laughs> kind of, it was just unplayable. Uh, and you could see when he turned up, he basically smiled and rubbed his hands together, and we we're like, oh God, here we go. <laughs> Not what you want to see. But yeah, even but one of our openers just got out softly to one of the the opening bowlers before he'd come on, and that's it gone. You know, I, I, and I don't I don't remember being in um, being in a match where it's really been on. You know, because even mm. if you take three or four wickets, and now with bowlers often limited in the number of overs they can bowl, so it's really only kind of test matches it, it can happen. Um, yeah. I think Anil Kumble did it for India. Um, and like the bowlers at the other end at the time because they were miles ahead in the game were just bowling wide just trying not to get wickets right um, so yeah I, but I think but I think so if anyone's got any suggestions of what what's the hardest thing to do in a sport whether it's a one-off thing or a because I don't think holding one is is the most difficult thing but mm. um, yeah that'd be good to get some uh, some some listless suggestions yeah, yeah. So, what is the hardest thing to do suggestions yeah so frankly who cares pod at gmail.com for those but yeah so just to finish on baseball I mean it's uh, it's on BT Sport but I, I would recommend as a way of getting into it Instagram because you just get all the flash highlights uh, and some of the fielding is unbelievable uh, mm. and a lot of the things like you see in cricket now T20 I suspect baseball reactions to that would be right We've been doing that, <laughs> so um, it is definitely worth uh, worth getting into that on Instagram and seeing some of the highlights. Okay. Um, I haven't really um, been into baseball since the, the final scene of Naked Gun, um, so I think I might watch that again as a way of uh, getting myself back into it. Uh, yeah, see if anyone gets mown down in the outfield or the head flies off when they're trying to catch a ball. That sort of thing. Is that one where OJ Simpson goes down the steps? That is the no, one, yeah. yes. Classic. Yeah, I might get to dust that out. I mean, the other one, um, and it's a bit of a shame because it's so old that none of the players are playing anymore, but the the Simpsons 
episode where all the baseball players are in it uh, called Home mm. at Bat is um it's definitely worth a watch. It's okay. one of the, the like the golden era of The Simpsons. It's one of the best. So, right. um, and then Moneyball, which if you like stats, the book is amazing mm. and the film is very good. But you, it does help to know a bit more about it. You get more out of it. It's, Did, it's, it's one of my. That's favorites. very good. Did you know Sam Allardyce is is a disciple of um, Billy Bean in terms of his his stats. He, really? Uh, yeah, he read that book, and uh, to this day, he uh, he be- he believes in that approach that he took. Yeah, I mean, he is a bit more cutting edge than people give him credit for. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, once you've drunk a pint of wine, it kind of sticks with you more than anything else in your life. I think that's fair. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I um, Brentford have been really into it. Mm. Um, they were really big adopters and they picked, I think was their chairman was like an ex-trader, but then they had a manager as well who was a sort of trader who'd really specialised in that kind of, that, that was how they signed players. And that was where they, end, you know, sort of top of the championship. That's kind of how, one of the reasons they got there. Oh, um, right. Didn't that? So, yeah, definitely, definitely uh, hmm. something to consider. But yeah, yeah. so so that's... Um, that's all on on baseball. That was a, a lot of stats-driven chat. So, well, I've lost a few listeners there. But... <laughs> you get, probably gained a, a baseball watcher though, because I will give it a, give it give it a bit of a try. Yeah, hmm. there is um, and, and we do talk about sports coverage and the best way to get they they I think they have a, a free live game on YouTube each week. Which okay, I mean obviously because there's millions of games, so what's giving away one? But um, yeah, that is quite interesting. And others, it does feel like. Some of British sports are a bit better at that when they put the, the Cricket World Cup on free to air, and um, I think the hundred is going to be on terrestrial TV as well. So yeah, um, the people will, that. Yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll chat about the hundred because uh, it's one of those things I don't really understand at all on many levels. So there's probably mm. quite a bit of material in that for us. On to gold, silver, bronze, Dean Macy, which this week focuses on individual head-to-head sporting rivalries and duels, which is part two of our uh, rivalries um, segment. So, um, Tom, do you want to start? Yeah, so I've got I've got a couple of which are specific event sort of duels, but the one that I picked, which is not in my and this normal sweet spot of sports was uh, so I really like a rivalry when the characters are really different like they represent completely different kind of sides of the tracks or you know stars of play or things like that uh, and so whilst this is a little bit before my time the uh, the first one I picked is Ayrton Senna Alain Prost Alain Prost oh nice have you picked this one mm-hmm. I haven't. No. Oh, there you no. go. I thought, oh, mm-hmm. F1, I'll have this all day. <laughs> so um, so what I hadn't really appreciated, so I kind of started watching F1 when I was little, and it was Mansell era, so 1901 onwards, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and Senna and Prost were still around, but I hadn't really appreciated. So they'd been teammates at McLaren and were very different different characters. And I, you'll know more, probably more about this than I will, but Senna was like very instinctive kind of racing driver, very gifted. Yeah. Prost very scientific, um, very much into the technical side of it. Um, 
but there was two seasons, eighty eight, eighty nine, where they um, they won. They were both at McLaren. They won a championship each. It was a classic McLaren red and white car as well with yeah. Marlborough. Love it, love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in nineteen eighty eight season, uh, they won all of the Grand Prix bar one between them. And then the following season, they lost about four out of eighteen, I think. And um, it was, and about two of them were at the end of the season when they were probably phoning it in a little bit. Uh, so utter domination, but between them, you know, real kind of needle. There was quite a famous crash where they one crashed into the other. Uh, so they sort of split the honours, and then they went off to different teams, um, and uh, sort of Senna. You know, very famous story about you know, potentially the greatest ever, but then tragically cut short. So, yeah, so I thought of all the F1, and I think it's a sport that does lend itself to interpersonal rivalries quite well. It felt like it was the the sort of one of the era I knew as one of the, the most obvious. Yeah, quintessential um, head-to-head rivalry, that one. And and obviously the film Senna. Have you seen it, the documentary? No, I haven't, no. Oh. You must watch it. You you must watch it. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, um, and anyone who's seen that will know that 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 it's one of the classic rivalries. Um, yeah, completely different drivers, as you've said. Um, I think there was um, one of the world titles was won by. It might have even been both of them actually, by one taking the other out um, in the in the final race. I think that was at Suzuka. Um, and I remember watching that and just thinking that this is ridiculous. It's so blatant what's happened. And they both just walked off like, yeah, it was always going to happen. I think one of them might have said before, I'm not going to let you pass on the first corner or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> it was that ridiculous. And that was it. Uh, nothing you could do about it, really, because they were both crashed. They both they were both out. So, um, yeah, that's a, that is a, a an excellent, uh, excellent shout. And I think that thing about having characters who are very different it's one of the key things I think in in the major sporting rivalries. Certainly, a couple of mine, uh, yeah, follow that. Yeah, I, I think, and that made me think about. I think with that when they the, the personality of the like the, the people in it that makes it such a key a key thing, um, mm. and that's what the appeal is of of single sport, single kind of. Uh, participant sports rather than team yeah. sports and we've talked about rivalries as on a team sense but um, yeah I, I think that's kind of a key part of it so what's your Agreed. first one so mine so funnily enough mine are all I, I, re- I didn't do this on purpose but I realised mine are three different types of, uh, of rivalry so the first is um, is more of a, a specific occasion um, the second one's like a, a more of a like the Senna Prost type career rivalry and then the third is is individual rivals within the team so anyway so first one um is bolt v gatlin 2015 world championship 100 meters didn't see this coming uh, yeah so this this is one of my fav that um that race so this is the champ world championship in beijing beijing where um bolt wasn't at his best uh, Gatlin has come back from, um, you know, dr- drugs controversies, and it was massively hyped, almost like a good and evil um, rivalry where um, Bolt's sort of, he, he's a little bit past his best. He's been a bit, I think he had some injuries 
earlier in the season and he comes into the tournament not in great form and no one's quite sure how fast he can run. Gatlin had been dominant that season um, and during the heat is absolutely tearing it up whilst Bolt is sort of struggling. Even, even the styles of the two is like, I mean, you've, a good guy and bad guy is, is really good for, his, for a rivalry yeah. as well. And then, um, but the styles, like the languid kind of style of Bolt versus, I mean, Gatlin from memory looks like he was just a ball of muscle and yeah there was no grace about him he was an absolute no. powerhouse yeah exactly and, that and he was a cheat so yeah <laughs> that added to, like, another line to it yeah and seemed to be like to lack remorse for anything that he'd he'd done as well um so yeah massive build-up now i don't know if you remember the semi-final but bolt stumbles in the semi-final off the of, at the start and has to work really hard just to even get to the final. Even though we've never seen him like this. Ever. Now you say this, that is, yeah, it is ringing bells. Yeah, um, absolutely incredible. Now I think the semis and the final are on the same day usually in these world championships. Yeah, yeah. So that's a few hours before, um, and that sets it up even more. Um, all the coverage on the BBC was about like this is this is you know he has bolt. It was really really ridiculously biased looking back, but. Like, bolt. <laughs> He has to win this. He has to win this. The whole future of athletics sort of depends on the, on this. Because uh, it's someone, so, is it Darren Campbell, who's normally on the BBC coverage, and he's like really, really on his high horse about drugs, isn't it? Well, no, um, well, the the, the biggest, uh, the main person, or the the main two, are Michael Johnson, really, who's on the oh, BBC right. coverage. Yeah, he was he was massively uh, talking about it, and um, Steve Cram and commentary, who. Um, so yeah, the race, the race obviously starts. Bolt gets a decent start, and he had to get a decent start. But he's behind all the way. Gatlin at the end just doesn't quite manage to run through the line. Bolt just keeps going and beats him by one one hundredth of a second. And the commentary, and I watched this again yesterday because this is what I thought it was, but it's correct. This is what he <laughs> says. He says it's Bolt, and he says he's saved his title. He saved his reputation. He may even have saved his sport, <laughs> he says, which is pretty good. And it did feel like that at the time. I just, I, I remember thinking the thing I love most in sport, probably the thing I love more than anything, is people that turn up. And when you have to perform, you've got to do it in a specific moment. They pull it out of the bag, and that that was right up there for me in terms of he wasn't at his best. He shouldn't really have won that race, but when it mattered. It, it, he, you know, ten seconds. He did the best. He he performed above what he probably could, should have at that moment, and Gatlin just couldn't match it, and he won. I I absolutely love that. It's probably my top three individual sporting wins uh, that I've ever like seen. I, so it had to be in there for me. I just love Bolt. Bolt was brilliant, and he he set world records and he did all sorts of amazing things. That's my favourite Bolt moment, definitely. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. That's a good one. All right, well, yeah. um, I'm just going to slightly move uh, tangent because we've had uh, we've got a couple of firsts here. Is that we've had our nomination in for Gold Silver Bronze Dean Macy from a listener. Uh, and not only that, it's a sport we've not covered before and, and certainly only mentioned in dispatches a few minutes ago. Uh, so... Here's my suggestions. This is from uh, Dingers, who did contribute his greatest day of sport as well. So definitely, he did. I uh, say a nominee to be to be chairman of the frankly who cares fan club. <laughs> um, so 
rivalry that would definitely make the podium. We'll be a judge of that. Um, mm. Classic 90s. Stephen Hendry versus Jimmy the Whirlwind White. Um, and uh, what also added a nice bit of spice to this, mm. uh, they recently had to play in the qualifiers for the World Championship, which is happening uh, in a few weeks. And they in the first round of it. In, yeah, it's yeah. brought together in the first round of the qualifiers. And I don't think Hendry's tried to qualify for a number of years, whereas White has. Um, and so uh, White, Jimmy White made six World Championship finals uh, and five of them were consecutive years from 1990 to 1994 uh, and lost to Hendry in four of those. I think John Parrott was the other one. Yeah. Um, and then the last of their finals finished 18 frames to 17. Uh, White was ahead in the final frame, missed a really simple black and Hendry came in and cleared up. Uh yeah, most popular player never to win the world title. Hendry won seven titles. Um, mm. But, yeah, I only said it's unlikely that either are going to make it through the qualifiers this year, but just for them to be drawn against each other. And apparently there was they were doing the draw live mm. on BBC and they were with Hendry and they told him that they'd, they'd drawn white and he was just like, <laughs> you have me on. There's no... Yeah, <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, that's I mean, a good shout. and again, there was a little bit. I think Jimmy White was a bit more exciting. He, in the pre kind of Ronnie O'Sullivan era, he did a bit more, played some sort of bit more expansive shots. I mean, it's sneaker, so it was all relative, but um, you know, he he was probably a bit of a fan favourite, whereas Stephen was. was pretty pretty boring, just really yeah. efficient. And he sort of became the de facto villain for just denying this fan favourite, but I don't suspect he gave it to us. Um, <laughs> no, I'm sure he didn't. But again, that was, you know, 90s when a lot of sports were going on to satellite TV and the world title had some really big, uh, mm. really big TV audiences and the, the Steve Davis, Dennis Taylor one, that got something like 18 million viewers. 18 million viewers and it set a record which stands till today for the biggest uh, viewing figures after midnight really because it went yeah on which I, yeah 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 it finished about 12 15 12 30 or something the fi- famous black ball final yeah um yeah, good yeah. so so snook snooker was huge then and that that era with hendry um and white is probably the end that probably marked the end of it being a massive, massive sport. Jimmy White was huge, huge, uh, hugely popular, and Hendry obviously massively successful. And when, when that ended, it sort of started dipping a bit. So I think, yeah, so it, that is a really, really brilliant, um, a brilliant shout. I remember one of those finals. I can't remember if it was the eighteen seventeen one, or one of the other close ones. There was one that was eighteen fourteen or something like that, where at the end. Maybe it was the eighteen seventeen because I was expecting Jimmy White afterwards when they interviewed them. Like, what a harsh thing to do! Interview the loser mm. straight after, but they all have always done it. And they, and they said, "How are you feeling about that?" He went, "I feel great. It's like, I feel I feel amazing." It was just like he and this is he was a bit of a people's favourite because he had just loved he loved the sport and he loved playing snooker and I think. He, just, he knew he'd just been involved in the classic and that he played well. And it's like, I feel, I, I'll never forget it. So I feel great. I feel brilliant. And you, I didn't sense that he was like just putting that on, thinking it was genuine. 
I am. Yeah. Just going back to really hard things. Do you, you mm. join? You um. You sort of play pool in pubs all the time, and then you you have a bit of a go, and then you mm. try and play snooker, and it's impossible. <laughs> like this. This table's enormous. So I used to go uh, in my hometown, Aldershot. There's a um, there was a snooker club called Jimmy White's, and me and a friend mm. used to go down there quite a bit. You know, in the school holidays when it was really quiet during the day, and just play snooker for hours on end because it's quite a cheap well, like, day out. Cause you just pay for you like if you're a member, you just pay for the electricity on the light, and then <laughs> and like our top break was probably like I was like thirteen or fourteen because like I've, I've got two blacks and two reds. So that's pretty that'd good. Be six, that'd be sixteen, like, or, or oh yeah, pink then black, thirteen, good one. Um, <laughs> at the end, and it was just yeah. So to watch people do that, you just oh, if and you know it, there isn't a handicap system like there is for golf, so it's mm. it's not as inclusive when you play against someone. But mm. I mean, what if someone their highest break is like thirty five? They're probably a serious player. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, I know. So it's just you know quite. It's just one of those sports you think you try and pick it up and you're like bloody hell. So, yeah, this this isn't pool. Yeah, I know, yeah. definitely not. <laughs> so yeah, good, uh, good one. Love nice one, nineties centric that is as well. I've got I've got yeah. a really nineties one to to come up later. So right over oh, to you. Okay. Okay. Right. So my next one, and again we've talked about. Um, these classic rivalries of contrasts of, of style and personality. I don't think you could have a bigger one than this. Um, and it's from a sport where the phrase styles make fights uh, comes from, uh, which basically means if you've got a contrast in styles, that's generally going to lead to a good fight. So in this country, we had like Ben and Eubank was a, was a brilliant example of that. Someone like Sugar Ray Leonard and, 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 yeah. uh, Thomas it's, it's boxing, isn't it? Like that to the people who Well are. done. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is boxing. So um it's 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 um Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Um the yeah, probably the, the great rivalry in, in in the sport and one of the greatest in, in sport. Uh so you've got Ali who is well the greatest, <laughs> self claimed but true. Um and uh, and Joe Fraser, who Fraser, who was a very different style of boxer. Ali, obviously, very smooth, uh, floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee, in his own words. Fraser was very much head down, comes forward, club club you basically to the ground. Um, and they met three times. So, quick bit of background: Ali, as everyone knows, got stripped of his world title, refused to go to Vietnam, so he was stripped of it. During this absolute peak, 1967, he doesn't fight for over three years. Uh, um, yeah. I don't think that's as well known as you think. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, maybe. Okay. Uh, I so, don't. I, I just didn't think it's particularly. As time's gone on, I found mm. out a lot about that relatively late about the whole Vietnam thing, and I, mm. um, I actually didn't think. Later on, when people were talking about the greatest sportsman of all time, they talked more about his sporting performance than they did about that. I think right. it might just yeah. be one of those things, like maybe Serena Williams' ongoing fame that I've that I've kind of has passed me by a little bit. But I do think, yeah, there, there's probably a generational thing where where it probably stopped being more prominent. But yes, it was certainly when I grew up, you couldn't avoid um, 
sort of his story he was still very much in 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 the the the, the public eye and his story was 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 being told a lot but yes in he he um uh won the world title off um in about 1964 i think from um sunny liston who was an, a, a mike tyson type of that era no one expected him to win he won um, and then won the rematch as well, controversially in about 90 seconds with a phantom punch, but people still not sure why he didn't get up from it, Sonny Liston, but then went up to went on to just clean up completely in his absolute prime. Some of the boxing, we'd never seen anything like it. He's sort of just moved around the ring and really smoothly, And but he had the power as well. So then in 1967, and his previous couple of fights before that, they say at the peak, one of the some of the peak fights of, in terms of boxing, of grace and power. Um, get stripped of his title because he refused to um, to to go to fight in Vietnam. He probably wouldn't have had to go to fight because he's Muhammad Ali, and they probably would have let him sort of do things like exhibition fights and things like that. But it was more about the principle that sort of moves him up in the, into the and the stratosphere as like this this great figure, not just within sport but uh, transcending it. But we did we we lost his peak his peak years in that period. Frazier comes along and wins the world title. Uh, so, um, and at that point, um, they're, they're, they're friends. I think Frazier even sort of helped Ali out financially a bit. Ali would talk him up. Uh, and it gets to the point where Ali's coming back. Frazier's the, the, the world champion. And they, um, they, they arrange a fight at Madison Square Garden. It's called the Super, no, the Fight of the Century. The fight of the century is what it's called, and it lives up to expectation. So, t- technically, you know, a lot of people considered Ali still to be the world champ because he was stripped of, of it in his prime. Um, uh, comes back, I think he had one or two warm-up fights. Then has this this fight. So, really, it's almost like a uh, this will settle it. It's a brilliant fight. Um, it goes the distance. It lives massively up to its name, um, and Frazier wins it. In the end, um, uh, on points, uh, I think he broke Ali's jaw during it, and he actually floors Ali in, in I think the fourteenth round, or it may have even been the last, the last round. Not the first time he was floored. Henry Cooper famously did that to him um, as well, but um, knocks him down. Ali gets up, finishes the fight. Both of them come out of it with a lot of credit. Ali still a hero. The fact that he was able to come back and do that was amazing. Um, but Fraser wins wins the title. So after that, Frazier loses the title to George Foreman. Um, brutal. Off, the, um, off um, the grills. Yeah. 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 Of grill yeah. fame. Yeah. Um, and later of Rumble in the Jungle uh, yeah. f- fame with Muhammad Ali. I mean, that's um, later in this fight, not later in the grills, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, so uh, um, both Ali and uh, Foreman. Uh, sorry, both Ali and Frazier um, sort of carry on, but Frazier's a, a bit past his best. They have two more fights. So they have the Super Fight 2 in 1974. Uh, this one is an, a unanimous victory for Ali and probably the least interesting for three fights. Most people would have heard, even if they don't know anything about it, about the thriller in Manila. Oh, yeah. They, so they changed the, the marketing yeah. person between the second fight and the third fight, didn't they? <laughs> Yeah, basically Ali, because he came up with that <laughs> yeah. phrase. Um, the thriller, and I'll get get back to that in a second. But um, thriller and Manila, and this was a arguably one of the most brutal fights of all time. Um, 
uh, Ali described it afterwards as the closest to death that he had come. Um, uh, it's actually stopped in the 14th. Uh, it, it, I yeah, after the 14th round, I think um, Frazier's cornerman stop it. I think Ali might have stopped it, well, might, might not have got up himself. Wow. Um, but it was just too much and they, it stopped. It's a, it was a classic fight, but brutal. Neither fighter probably recovered fully physically from that afterwards. So you've got these three fights, two of them absolutely incredible fights. You've got these very contrasting styles. But the other thing is there's a, so, there was a lot of... Um, I mentioned they were sort of friends at the beginning. By the end, they were not at all. Ali um, said a lot of cruel things about Joe Frazier, and Ali was very much a showman. He did a lot yeah. of things to um, to promote fights, but he said some things that were pretty bad. He used to call him ugly. He said that when he cries, the tears run behind his head and go back down the back of his head. He, and also he said things like he called him a gorilla, which is like obviously these days, I mean, that whole thriller in Manila thing. He says, "I'm going to beat the, the the gorilla in the thriller in Manila sort of thing." This is not something that really he should have been saying about yeah. another black boxer at that at, at that point or any point really. And um, yeah, um, Fraser really took this badly to the point where he was so bitter that towards the end, I, I found a quote where he said. Um, he was talking about like he would dance on Ali's grave when he dies and stuff like that. Most of those boxers that era, that era revere, uh, revered um, Ali. But he said, one of his quotes is, we locked up three times. He won two and I won one. But look at him now. I think I won all three. Obviously, Ali had Parkinson's for, yeah, I know, the genuine bitterness. So you have, you've got the, 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 the two of the great boxers during a period when nobody dodged anybody. A mm. couple of great fights as part of a trilogy and this sort of simmering sort of resentment on one side, although Ali said nothing but good things about Frazier after, after he retired. And I think, yes, you have, you have one of the best individual rivalries. Yeah. You can, you can think of really. I think, I mean, boxing does give, it does lend itself to, to that because the nature of it is everything has to be a big one-on-one, -on -one. you know, there's no like league overriding kind of qualification, really. It's pretty, and that's kind of to its detriment now is that the, the greatest fighters often haven't really fought or haven't got to the peaks at the same yes. time. Um, and, you know, if it's right, it is absolutely compelling. And that's why there's films that, because that, you, you can almost say, well, it's not ridiculous because stuff like that actually happened. And, you know, mm. we, we have watched some of the... Uh, we watched Creed recently, didn't we? And, and it's yeah. like, you could say, well, this is just really stupid, but it's not because that, that sport can be that ridiculous, especially boxing. Um, so yeah, it's, mm. um, a good, yeah, very good. Oh, it's going to be tough this week. So, uh, <laughs> I've already thought about one, one of mine's really weak now. I might have to bin it, but, um, the, uh, so I, I've gone for one in, um, in a team sport, uh, but uh, there's a few sports which let, really lend themselves to personal rivalry. So baseball is one, but cricket as well. Um, uh, so I've picked a game, uh, and I would recommend you watch this on YouTube. There's about a 25-minute highlights package, which is really good. So it's 1998. Uh, it's the last summer of BBC TV coverage, and that really comes across. It's pretty village on the on the clip, <laughs> uh, and they don't. Part of the knock-on effect is they don't make enough of this particular duel, and I think if it had been in the Sky era, 
played they'd play this all the bloody time. Uh, so this is 1998 Trent Bridge. Uh, it's the third or fourth test between England and South Africa. South Africa one test up, uh, and England need about 250 to win in the fourth innings. So it's like um, one, and it's the sort of I think it's the fourth day evening. So England's sort of batting for the close a little bit. Um, Butcher and Atherton Oatman. So this is an England team who a year later were ranked the worst test team in the world. Uh, so they were under Alex Stewart at the time. Still had a lot of good players, but were just in this period where they were chopping and changing. So this lineup had Ramprakash and Hick from last time's underachievement section. Um, so England probably yeah, second favourites, and uh, South Africa had uh, Alan Donald, Sean Pollock, um, and then a little bit of a dodgy back backup kind of bowling attack, which it sort of comes apparent in the uh, in the clip really, but. But Pollock and Donald were unbelievable opening bowlers. And um, so Mike Atherton opens up with Mark Butcher. Mark Butcher doesn't get too many, he gets 20 or 30. And then Atherton and Sane put on the partnership. And, and in this partnership, Atherton nicks the ball to Mark Boucher behind and doesn't walk, and he's given not out. Like It's not an absolute clanger, but it's not, it's not great. I think he gloves it, so... And Donald then, within a couple of overs, does the same to Hussein, and the keeper drops it. And he's going absolutely apoplectic, and it's proper pantomime villain. And then he goes round the wicket and just tries to hit Atherton. And it's like all this hubris. He's like chewing the scenery, and this is properly quick. And it what makes you think um, that... So the bats those days look completely different to the sort of bats even I use now. Like they look like bloody toothpicks in comparison. And he's <laughs> going at him, hammer and tongs, and trying to, you know, and he's just sort of swaying out of the way. And Atherton was very much, I think he's one of England's un- most underrated players because he played in an era where every team had some incredible bowlers. So he faced against, you know, Wasim and Wakar and Kapil Dev, and then. You know, he got the end of Glen McGrath. He, the West Indies were always a good team when he played, and they almost got rubbish as soon as he retired. He he, he just bore the brunt. So his figures of like, I think he averaged just under forty, maybe around about forty. But the, the players he was playing against, um, and it was just a classic kind of passage of a fire-breathing fast bowler, and then this quite sort of on the face of it timid England opening bat you know softly spoken on the face of it but probably you know having a bit of a um, mm. you know not walking always always adds a bit of spice to everything um, and so Hussein and Atherton weathered the storm I think Hussein got 60 odd and they eventually got Hussein out uh, which like a brilliant one handed catch by Callis and there was still about 70 to get um, and Atherton was still there and the, the big disappointment for this would be uh, for me was that Atherton deserved 100 um, but Stuart, Alex Stewart the captain came out and just whacked it and got about 45 off about 20 balls and left Atherton two runs short so he finished eight, 98 out but he Ooh. won the duel but it was just it's the best bit like the compelling one on one test cricket that I think I've ever seen um, and I think 
it, it, it sort of because of its age, but also the coverage at the time, it goes a little bit under the radar. So that that would be my one of mine. That's a great shout. I remember it. Uh, I remember that well. I remember. I must have watched it live. Um, I mean, Sunday night probably. So yeah, I'm pretty. Yeah, I, um, and I remember it was like steam was coming out of um, yeah. out of Donald's ear. It, it, his ears. It was just <laughs> like. And, and foam coming out as well. Yeah, <laughs> furious. His eyes. If you watch the clip, you see his eyes sort of just like absolutely. When Boucher hate. shells the child, it's quite an easy catch. The Boucher one as well. He just like goes ah, and you can. It, Boucher looks at him like <laughs> yeah. my life's in danger. Yeah, because Boucher was really young when he broke into the test team as well. So he was mm. he was probably only about twenty, and he looks about yeah. fourteen. And yeah, he looks like mm. Donald's just gonna. Rip his head off. <laughs> it it's thr- it's absolutely thrilling sport that the, yeah. the sort that gets your heart racing. Um, people might not think cricket could do that. It can do that. Yeah. <laughs> test um, cricket, especially. Yeah, um, exactly. And that was a period when test cricket could be quite quite boring, quite traditional. It's before. It's mm. only a few years later that the Aussies started to attack a lot more with their batting. Um, mm. But yeah, it was, and it proved to be. You know that that was one of the tests in a 2-1 series victory so that was a really big achievement for that pretty iffy England team of that era um, yeah yeah. which a year later went down to New Zealand at home and were you know pilloried from pillar mm-hmm. to post so um, yeah I, I, that's what I really love it and I, I watch it on YouTube nice one. all the time that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one excellent um, right so my my last main one is which I'll quickly chuck in is a an individual rivalry within the team sport as well it's football, it's one of my favourite ones I don't talk about Arsenal much on this podcast but I'm going to now um, which is uh, Keane V Vieira in um, oh, which I, a good one, yeah. I think in the Premier League era is probably the best um, head-to-head rivalry I can think of because those two players Vieira who's captain of captain of Arsenal and Keane, captain of Man United, during that period going from about 96 to 2005, those two players were there the whole time um, and that's the peak period of the, the rivalry between uh, Man United and Arsenal and yeah, those two players sort of epitomise their teams They people consider them now or think of them as defensive midfielders which they weren't, they were box-to-box players who could win the ball um and both so Keane is probably your your classic uh, midfield general um who could yeah win the ball set the tone for the team score goals i was at an arsenal man new batch at highbury once where he got the two goals we went one nil up he scored two they beat two one yeah. he scored some quite big goals in europe i remember when they were um he did they won the champions league he, he scored the winner in turin i think Yes, yeah. So a real, real leader, Vieira. But you could argue is one of those players that really transformed football in this country. He was, he was the first player, midfield player that I ever saw. And Wenger has a lot to do with this. Who had received the ball from his centre backs, with his back, um, you know, facing the play, whilst under pressure, and still be able to turn, not just lay it off or pass it back, but turn or flip it over their heads. And start an attack. I'd never seen this. Arsenal players would would normally just launch the ball over the halfway line from the wings, uh, from from full back position. And I, you didn't really see this in other teams either. So these are really good, brilliant players. But they're head to their rivalries as well. But there was a lot of respect for each other 
there was not a lot of respect in that Arsenal team um, for other players, but uh, sorry, in that in that rivalry for other players. Mm. But Vieira and Keane, I think, respected each other. I remember Vieira getting sent off for Rude Van Nistelrooy doing some dodgy stuff that, that, that basically tricked him into getting a red <laughs> card. But anyway, but it was it was Keen that puts his arm around Vieira as he's losing his head and says, look, look Patrick, just appeal, appeal, appeal. And, it, and he does walk off, right? I think Keane didn't have much time for, for Van Nistelrooy either for the, by the sound of it. But um, yeah, brilliant players. Really, you know, where it, the player who won their individual duel often um, was on the winning team in those matches. Uh, that's how important they were to their teams. Both players, Vieira undoubtedly one of the greatest players Arsenal have ever had. He'd be in any Arsenal eleven. Vieira, um, Keane would be, they've, they've probably got more competition in that position, um, but I'm pretty sure he'd get in their best eleven as well. Just a quality, quality period, brilliant yeah. team rivalry and brilliant individual rivalry. Vieira, you say Vieira sort of reinvented that role for people going forward. I think Keane was one of the last, like, proper hard men as well. So, mm. like, there's... I mean, he probably... It gets probably more coverage than a lot of his play, but when he assaulted Haaland, and, and there, there's a few kind of... He got a lot of red cards towards the end of his career when he was a bit, a bit more niggly, but yes. he did, like... There's that infamous scene in the tunnel where he stands up for the rest of his team, and you're like... Yep realize if you if you take someone on a man you you've got king to answer to <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i was at that match oh that that was great we were getting text saying it's all <laughs> kicked <laughs> off in the tunnel but it was it, that was yeah Arsenal ended up losing 4-2 but it was a great game and keen yeah so keen that's keen actually yes yeah. um fronting up to Vieira, isn't it who's yeah, yeah, go yeah. gary neville and says you're meant to be the nice guy <laughs> <laughs> see you out on the pitch Vieira scored in that game, but we ended up losing. Um, so yeah, yeah, they, but uh, yeah, a great rivalry, a genuine rivalry, but with respect at the end of it, I think. Um, I've got one quick last one, which is, um, I think is is weak. Now we've had some really strong ones, but I just wanted to mention it is mm-hmm. that um, so golf should lend itself to this, but I think a lot of the rivalries are in a period uh, before kind of my real interest in golf, sort of Jack Nicholas, Gary Player type eras. So I didn't go with any of those and then I think Tiger Woods has suffered a little bit because of a lack of a real like guy he went toe to toe with so Mickelson's kind of the obvious one so I was thinking about Mickelson and Woods and, and they were always played really badly when they were made to play together at the Ryder Cup so you, and they're very different people like Mickelson really. but the one I wanted to pick was an, just from a one-off tournament was Mickelson uh, and Henrik Stenson in the Open so this is um going back a few years but it was the final day and Mickelson would have won almost any major with his play from where he was but Stenson held him off by playing equally brilliant and it was just two sportsmen going at it toe to toe battering everyone else in this competition but still someone had to end on the losing side and it it was Mm. maybe Mickelson wouldn't have done if he wasn't so nice like you know he might be a bit too nice for his own good really but um and just yet yeah, two guys who it really meant a lot to but still showing masses of respect for each other and it was just absolutely transfixing and and mm. that's my fear about the masters tonight is that if um matsuyama just walks off with it it'll be quite boring and that that can mm. happen 
Um, but when there's two or more people properly going for it, and because there was such a gap between everyone else in that and those two, I thought it was just absolutely brilliant. So won't make the podium, but something to... That's a good shout. That is a good shout, because golf, I've mentioned with cricket, you know, it can be sort of um, heart racing stuff. Golf, people might not consider it like that, but if you're into it and you get those sort of duels, it is really, really, really good. Yeah. Mm. <sighs> right. Oh, can I just just quickly uh, just chuck in the final thing? Because um, yeah, yeah. I was thinking about tennis rivalries, and there's been some like some good ones down the years. Um, and I was thinking about Borg McEnroe, but I thought actually yeah, not as strong as some of the ones we're probably going to come up with. But um, something else came up, but I'd, I remembered, which is probably my favourite quote in sports history, which is um, so Jimmy Connors, American um, yeah. uh, player of the sort of McEnroe Bulgaria, like he had a long, long career. He um, uh, had this. Well, I'm going to call it rivalry. <laughs> just so I could sneak it in here. But Vetus Gerolitis was this player of that same era, right? I've never heard that name in my life. (laughs) So he was a bit of a showman and a bit of a playboy as well. Ended up sort of dying quite young. But um, he, a lot of flair, had these long flowing blonde locks. And um, so there was a he at one point in his career, he had lost 16 times in a row to Jimmy Connors, which you might not think is much of a rivalry. But the reason I'm mentioning it is because um, he comes out after beating him in the next match, he comes out into a press conference, sits there, sits down, says, right, let that be a lesson to you. Nobody beats Vitas Gerolita 17 <laughs> times in a row. <laughs> which, yeah, I thought was worth worth a mention. That is, uh, that so, is yeah. excellent. <laughs> and that's it for me. Right. Well, we've got... Um, we must be getting better at this, because the last few have been quite difficult to choose to choose the, yeah. the winners. Um, I... Ooh, I wonder if... I think in most weeks, the Gatlin-Bolt one would factor pretty highly. But then we've so got... what have we got? What have we got? Do a recap. So we've got Senna Prost, Gatlin Bolt, yeah, yeah, um, White Hendry, mm. Frazier Ali, oh. Atherton Donald. Um, I mean the Dean Macy slot usually picks up something slightly different, but mm. I wonder if because it was the most perhaps overblown and pantomime that. Gatlin and Bolt should take that slot for yeah the good versus evil. He saved <laughs> score hyperbole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let's throw that in there. I mean, it's just a way of um, basically extending the podium a bit more, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Senna Prost is is just very classic, and if you watch the film Senna, it becomes even more so. Um, which you should, by the way. Um. It is. It is. Yeah, I just think that's a, that's a brilliant one. It's one of the best. No, it's the it's the best within its sport, and there's been some good ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's stick that. That will be in. Um, Ali Frazier. Ali Frazier's got to be in. Yeah. Um, and I think White 
White Hendry, I, I think it loses some points because it's not as sort of viscerally physical as mm. Ali and Frazier. So I think mm. maybe Ali Frazier gets gold. Because that... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for ongoing yeah. niggle... Because Prost, yeah. Prost and Senna made peace and were talking about reshaping F1 as a sport. Yes. Which mm-hmm. is sort of... is nice, but I think for rivalries it's almost a little bit better if they just continue to dislike but respect each other, I think. <laughs> yeah. I prefer that. Yeah. Uh, so should we go with Ali Frazier? Yeah. Uh, followed by uh, Senna. Cross Senna, yes. Yeah. yeah, Cross Senna, and then and then White White and Hendry. I mean, they lo- you you can't have a. It's not a really visceral visceral kind of physical rivalry if it's done in mm. tuxedos, is it? But um... <laughs> that's true. And and it, although the, the World Championship finals were one sided, White did beat. Hendry a lot in other yeah. competitions which is again why it was just such a it, it's a really good one to pick and obviously Ding has said that it was going to get on the podium so oh um, <laughs> uh, yeah I might just take it off because um, <laughs> yeah. he'll yeah it'll be interesting to know whether he'll be pleased with that result as as being one of the first the, the first outsider the first outsider to make the podium or mm. whether he'll be disappointed that people in tuxedos are behind the people in overalls <laughs> uh, well, the time will tell time on that will one. tell yes mm. that's good yeah another tough one uh, if anyone's been inspired and, and can think of other things there's bound to be some absolutely corkers that, that we haven't thought of yeah uh, this, yeah get in touch anyway frankly who cares pod at gmail.com and we will uh, we'll go through those as well too late and, for podium, but not too late to for us to talk about it. Yeah, uh, what what we're thinking about doing is um, so ne- not next episode, the one after. So people have got a bit more time, just in case that's the reason they haven't sent them in. Um, that we're going to have for gold, silver, bronze, Dean Macy rules that should be introduced to sport. So uh, yeah, suggestions on mm-hmm. an email to frankly who cares pod at gmail dot com. Uh, that could go absolutely anywhere. That <laughs> we it might could. have to be quite strict on how long we spend on each. <laughs> yeah, but yes, anything that's been there must be things watching sport on your that you've had on your minds. Um, now's your opportunity to try and give them uh, uh, an airing. So yeah, get in touch. Yeah, yeah. Or oh, the, the other sideline to that is unofficial rules that you've always abided by in sport. So the. The, well, whilst that won't make the podium, the, the one we, we always talk about in cricket is if you sweep, you play a sweep shot and you miss it and it hits your pad, you're out. Like in the Surrey Championship, umpires hate the sweep shot. So, because it's just, it's new and it's modern and they don't like it. <laughs> so, if you you just appeal, non, it's just worth it because they're not thinking about, well, it wasn't hitting the stumps. They're just like, oh, yeah, that, that looks out. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, let, let's let's get on that in a couple of what would be a couple of episodes time. Yeah, stuff. Good. Brill. Right. So that's it for this episode. See you soon. Cheers. <laughs>